0: The Great Resignation, it's not my favorite label because it actually puts it in the context of the employer and not the individual, right? It's so it's, you know, take this job and I quit, you know, sort of thing. I'd rather put it into the positive perspective, which is it's the Great Opportunity.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you're going to hear week after week conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. Every week, I'm talking to thought leaders around the world who are knee deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems, and they still think the future is bright We need to know what they know. We need to see how they know how to get around obstacles and find opportunity and setbacks. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange, a place where we've brought together a constellation of five platforms, all aimed at elevating the insight in innovation going on in the world that almost no one knows about. But here we are celebrating ideas and people and thought leaders who are really making a difference. And hopefully, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you're going to get your own inspired moments and find what you are uniquely built to contribute. So today's guest is Gary Bowles, author of The Next Rules of Work. Now, this is a time that this matters. I've got to learn more about Gary's history with this particular concept where we all are. But boy, the, the mass resignation, the great resignation, some people call it, is underway. And Gary has some notions for this time period that are stunningly empowering. And I hope to share so many of those and Gary's story and all the things with you, but just know that we're in the presence of a really a really important thought leader, who's done a lot of living in rigorous intention. Gary's a internationally recognized expert on understanding and managing disruption. And I think that means from everything from our teenagers are driving us crazy to our business is under, you know, the most pressure it's ever been in. And he's a chair of the Future of Work organization for Singularity University. He has nine courses on LinkedIn, with over a million learners. So this is going to be a wonderful ride for us all. Welcome, Gary, to the Conspiracy of Goodness
0: podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Well, I, right before we started, you know, you were mentioning that you were, have all these initiatives all over the world that are making a difference with a consulting company. And so, you know, I want to let people know that Gary's perspective is going to be one of those from the hundred thousand foot look. This is important for our times. And, you know, I, I'd love for you to just open with your story because I, I think it's, it points to so much that's
0: important in these days. Well, thank you, Lynn. I appreciate the opportunity. So and it's uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to, to talk about some of these insights, because you're right. We're in, we live in disruptive times. And a lot of the, the people that I talk to around the world, I do about 100, 100 lectures a year to array everything from refugee youth in Amman, Jordan, to educators through UNICEF to CEOs of companies and very very similar challenges that everybody's dealing with and want to offer a number of hopeful insights and hopeful actions that people could take right. to help to navigate these extraordinary times but so speaking of navigating extraordinary times when i was uh, young I barely escaped high school, was never interested in college, but I sort of fell into the family business. And it just so happened that my father was a recovering minister who ended up writing the world's career manual, a book called What Colors Your Parachute." So I was trained as a career counselor at the age of 19. And the one takeaway you would get if you, anybody listening at the age of 19, were counseling people in their 40s and 50s who were in dead end jobs. Is that you should do what you love. And I found that what I loved was high tech, Silicon Valley. So in the early 1980s, I figured, oh, you know, th- there's this personal computer thing, Microsoft's a big company. It's kind of all been done. I mean, that, you know, what, what else could you possibly do with a computer? But I thought, I'll, I'll just move to Silicon Valley and, you know, got myself into a computer company and, working on a quality assurance test team. And, and then that sort of was the beginning of a whole set of steps, becoming a computer executive, becoming a serial and sometimes parallel entrepreneur, pivoting into magazines and uh, starting a number of technology magazines, and then pivoting again <laughs> into doing a lot more initiatives, what we call initiatives with impact, uh, with a range of different partners, um, and, and especially with Singularity University. And because the topics of the future of work, the future of learning, learning and the future of organizations just kept on coming up again and again in the work that we did with Singularity University. They eventually asked me to just become the chair for the future of work and help to coalesce the thinking of a range of brainiacs around the world about how exponential technologies and disruptive change are affecting our lives and so i've developed a set of processes and thesis i've recorded these courses that you mentioned on linkedin learning and uh and then wrote the book uh, next rules of work to try to help people to be able to navigate these disruptive times
1: mm-hmm. you know I, I just to get real human <laughs> about your story. Please tell the story of how your dad, I mean, this book, What Color Is Your Parachute, was probably what? Do you think it was maybe the first most important book in a long future of people focusing on business-related books? Tell me.
0: Yeah. So the Library of Congress was kind enough to honor him on a very short list of some of the most influential books of all time. Um, So he's enshrined in the library. And he, um, so I'll tell you, Briefly, sort of his backstory is he was a minister who was. We, I grew up in a tiny little town in in New Jersey, and then at the age of nine, we, my father was called here to be the canon pastor at this cathedral. And uh, and then after a couple of years, they went through a budget crunch and he was laid off. And so imagine you're you know you've got a family, wife and four kids. You know we were all early teens, and suddenly you're without a job. <laughs> And, and so he eventually, he, he found a job helping campus ministers, and there were quite a few of them at the time, but then they were getting laid off. And so he did research, Lilly Foundation paid for a year of research, and he talked to everybody he could possibly find who knew anything about job hunting, and it turns out there weren't very many. And so he synthesized all that into a book, originally for ministers, and then because so many different corporations and the Department of Labor ordering his book, he decided, well, maybe there's a thing here. And he rewrote it for the average person and uh, found a publisher. And uh, and then it kept on growing and growing. And eventually, more than 11 million copies in print. And almost five years ago now, at the age of uh, 90, uh, but we had started a company together, To bring his work online to develop online courses and that sort of thing and obviously he left behind an enduring legacy and a number of tremendous insights as to how we as individuals can navigate pivots in our lives initially in our careers but he also talked about life work planning of life in capital letters and work in small letters to help people to understand the balance between them and that really we can plan our lives we can not not with the sort of you know Planning out every single day for the future, but instead to have the agency and the influence in being able to direct our lives. Wow. What's the gist of how, what color is your parachute? So, the basic premise that my father settled on was that there's essentially three steps that we go through when we're going through pivots related to work. First, we need to do self inventory. That is, uh, we treat it like you're going on a trip. <laughs> what's going in the suitcase? Well, what are you, what's the unique skills, experiences? insights, aspirations, what makes you, you? Um, I often say when I, when I lecture, um, I show a picture of an iceberg. And I say, look, each of us as individuals we have only a small amount of awareness of what makes us unique that's above the waterline. And our peculiar psychology and neuropsychology, we we tend to discount a whole bunch of things that we have accomplished in our lives because we just assume everybody else can do those. I've got tons of great stories about people around the world who, who have you tell stories about their own skills and they make it sound like everybody can do these amazing things. And of course, not everybody can. And so the first step is what? It's how do you understand what makes you unique? The second step is where? There's a range of different scenarios where you as a human can apply those skills and unique characteristics to be able to do meaningful, well-paid work. And so if you can envision different wares and you can do the research to understand where those might be, you can have a range of possibilities. You can open up the aperture for what you might do at any pivot point in your life. And then the third part is the how, the mechanics, the job hunting and all that sort of stuff. And that's where people have typically focused over and over again. But he says, you must start with the what, the, what makes you unique to be able to actually envision and create that next version of you. Okay.
1: And this is quintessentially as important right now for our times as it was in what? What was the
0: date of publishing of that book? So the first book came out in nineteen seventy for ministers and then it was rewritten for the for the average person in nineteen seventy two. So and my father updated it almost every single year. So one of his favorite jokes is that he'd written forty-two different books. They just all had the same title. Uh.
1: All right. Well, this is at the heart of where we want to go. So let's make sure people understand too, where does our hard wiring fit in? We had a conversation a few weeks ago, Gary and I, and it, it reminded me that that we all are, are have sort of the same hard wiring. It's just about how we use our minds to decide what to do next, to thrive, thrive through adversity. Talk to me a little bit.
0: About, we talked about the amygdala. Can you share your thoughts on how we're wired? So there's a number of things that wire us uh, genetically, physically, physiologically, mentally, and socially. And you have to think of those as layers, right? So, so they're, they're sort of like the clay that each of us is given when we're born. And, and then there's that, that clay is shaped. We shape it ourselves, society shapes it, and so on. And so there's a variety of different physiological things that are true about us. And especially at the brain, there are, there's a variety of components of the brain that actually have a tremendous amount of influence on our decision making, on our belief systems, believe it or not, on the, on the ways that we interact with the world, but we're not aware of them. We don't, we don't know. You're not telling your heart to beat every single second, right? It just, kind of does it. And you're not telling your brain to spurt out chemicals to be able to influence how you respond in different situations or to make other parts of your body operate. And so because we're not aware of those things, we tend to think that, oh, we've got complete control over them. Well, we don't. (laughs) There's a pleasure center of our brain. There's a whole bunch of physiological interactions going on inside of our brain. And all of that adds up to help us to make decisions, to help us to move our bodies, to help us to interact with the world. But we often are so unaware of those processes that we make decisions and then we make up stories for ourselves as to why we made those decisions. One of my favorite uh, neuropsychologists and is uh, Dan Ariely at Duke Fuqua. And, and Dan talks all the time about how, he's an old friend, We he talks all the time about how we make decisions against our own best interests. Interests. and and so there's a you could explore some of the mechanics but basically there's a bunch of mechanics at the physiological level and then the ways that our minds develop where we come up with explanations for things that we don't necessarily understand how much we are or not in control of now we can be much more in control of those things it just takes uh i don't know it Rigorous intention, (laughs) rigorous attention, and then rigorous intention to how those mechanics work.
1: Thank you for bringing Dan Ariely's work up. I, I too, am a great fan of his. And if we're going to, it reminds me that anything that you say, and I'm sure there will be so many, anything that you and I talk about going in this podcast, links to these kind of folks and books and anything that comes up are going to be in the show notes. So people don't have to go grab a pen. I've got one. And if folks see me, writing away, it's because I'm taking notes of every amazing thing that Gary's saying. So, okay, Gary, that reminds me, that topic reminds me of something you brought up before when we were talking. You reminded me of this great quote by another wonderful thought leader that people should check out, Clay Shirky. That that quote about <laughs> it's not that we have too much information. We have filter failure. Talk to us about that.
0: So Clay's an old friend and a very influential thinker. He wrote a book called Here Comes Everybody, which presaged so much of the growth of social media. And he talked a lot decades ago about some of the potential ills that could come from us being so obsessed with living our lives on these social platforms. And Clay and I share a hairline, so uh, <laughs> he's a. It's he's. A, he's a, I know he's a great thinker, and he's now the vice provost of NYU. But his one of his greatest insights is that there was going to be. You could plot the exponential curve of the growth of information in our lives going back 25 years. Um, I started a magazine. I co-founded a magazine called uh, Interactive Week, and we, we essentially were the internet's first newspaper, and we chronicled the ways that information was suddenly becoming unfettered. And people back in the mid-90s thought, oh, we have so much information. But what we said was, no, 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 it's going to continually double and triple year after year. And what you'll get is an avalanche of information. And what Clay's insight was is, wait a minute, we're creating all this technology that unfetters, that reduces the friction to information. That's actually why Google was founded. Google was founded on trying to make access to the world's information. What we missed is that we needed to have technology that helped us to be able to manage that onslaught. And that's where we've failed. The technology itself does not filter well. As a matter of fact, the algorithms are biased towards giving us more and more negative information because that's what we as humans tend to click on. Again, the way that our minds are working, you know, we our minds were constructed, their bodies were constructed back when we all lived on the savannah or in a forest. And our attention is geared towards seeing something moving off in the distance. And we're trying to determine, is that my lunch or am I its lunch? That's the level of attention that we have. And then you suddenly take all these signals that are coming from all of these different sources. We're doom scrolling on our digital distraction devices day after day. And what ends up happening is our brains go on overload. And it turns out you're very suggestible when you're on overload. And so that's how a lot of these mechanisms work in the social media sphere. That's why people can keep on trying to sell us things is because we have filter failure.
1: This is an important point, because I think most of us think, well, yeah, that's happening to everybody else, but not me. We're all hackable.
0: Right. <laughs> here's, here's, okay. a, here's a thought experiment. Uh, and I'm not going to bias towards uh, whether you've got a more of a fixed mindset or a growth mindset or a conservative bent or more of a liberal or progressive bent. Here's the way that we're consuming this information in our lives. Look at them. Look at what they're doing. They're at it again. We need to stop them because if we don't stop them now, then we're all at risk. The things you love that you care about are all at risk. Now, you can apply that at any end of the spectrum. And that's, so it's, so the basically all of these media platforms are the same thing. It's simply that they're talking to different audiences, but they're using exactly the same strategies and mechanisms.
1: That is almost so simple that you can't believe you missed it once you hear it. That's exactly what's going on, isn't it?
0: Yeah, we're very hackable.
1: Yes, I like to remind folks that the internet is an attention economy that it went from uh, uh, you know 130 websites in 1993 to 40 million in 2003 so something had to become the way the internet was organized and it became I don't even know if by accident but it became our attention and now the all the games are just meant to play with our capturing and holding our attention absolutely so one thing I'd like you to comment on. So because I like to look at I always try and find the empowering way to look at things. You can yeah. always just stop in the negative downward doom cycle and end there, or you can try and swoop it back up. So I look at this algorithm problem as a that sword cuts both ways. Yeah. So If what we're being inspired to click on is going to be signs of danger and disorder, especially when we're on autopilot on social media or the news, right? If we're in our amygdala, our lizard brain, we're going to click on signs of danger and disorder. But if we have intention when we go there, that sword can cut the other way too. If we can intentionally click on things that send us soaring or elevate us or educate us or what have you and not follow our emotions over a cliff, we can change our algorithms to start serving us things
0: that that are better. Correct? absolutely but i would also encourage readers i mean so yes we need better technology to do that we need to to uh, infuse more of the platforms that provide us that, with that information but think of it as a diet think of it as an information diet so if you just have all of this high sugar content that gets you all riled up we constantly talking to family members and saying why are you watching that particular show what you know well it's 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 basically sugar <laughs> it's it's a, it's a sugar dose gets you your, your blood flow. think of it as a diet. And, and we need to be as intentional about how we consume information as we are about how we consume food. Now, that doesn't mean you have to watch every single bite and count every single calorie, but it does mean you need to prescribe for yourself a range of positive inputs in a given day. Because again, you don't see what's going on behind uh, curtains in your brain. <laughs> but we don't have a Fitbit for overload of information. But the truth is you are being overloaded. And so you must get out, away from the screen and out into the fourth. We did a retreat. There was a group of us did a retreat here in San Francisco a few years back, basically trying to think of ways to be able to encourage more positive activity in the world. And one of the great insights that came out of it, we actually did this with the National Park Service. One of the insights that came out of it was you could have doctors prescribe that you need to go to a park. And so that actually is now a thing. You can get a prescription that you need to get out into nature. And so this is critical for us as humans is we not just accept, but we've got to be intentional about determining. There's only so much of your attention, as you were saying, that you can give in a certain day. You must be more critical about how you're managing it to ensure that you have more of those positive inputs because your brain wants to look at that thing moving in the distance and determine if it's a risk.
1: Okay, this is this is major. So the practical tip here is be aware of that what you give your attention to expands and have some self-awareness about how many times the the internet is capturing and holding your attention and am I right about that?
0: Oh, absolutely. And and also if it gives you if it if it gives you more impetus with that, then realize that somebody is making money off of every single click. Somebody's making money off of every single article you read, headline you look at like that you click on, somebody is making money off of it, that should outrage you.
1: Okay. So the opposite is true that there are signs of, of incredible progress and innovation happening in the world. And that's what we do at the goodness exchange. And I'd like to talk about that just a little bit in a, and we'll take a break right here because it works in so so wonderfully to, to the alternative to this mind bending overwhelm that you're talking about. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles, and the podcast you're listening to now, the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I have a question and an answer for you. Have you been hoping the world is actually a lot better than what you see on the news and social media? Well, it is. In fact, it's radically better. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. But on December 1st, 2021, all that changes with the launch of the Goodness Exchange, a digital landscape where you will see that the world is full of goodness and progress, and we will introduce you to the people making it that way. Bottom line, someone is solving every vexing problem in the world, large and small. And the Goodness Exchange is where people are coming together to amplify a future that includes all that. No one with good intention and good ideas need feel alone again. Here's what you'll find at the Goodness Exchange. There will be articles about the most amazing things going on in the world that are going uncelebrated. There'll be interviews and events that will send your mind and heart soaring again. And a social media platform dedicated to a culture of kindness, insight, and celebration. A way of um, amplifying a brighter future for us all. And that social media platform is a place where organizations doing good in the world will not have to hold their nose anymore. It can be a trustworthy, respectful place for organizations to host their groups and gatherings and connect with each other. A network of positive networks, if you will. The Goodness Exchange will be a place to find mini-courses and masterclasses for personal and professional development. And eventually, there'll be a jobs board. And we have a children's website already all teed up. The thread running through it all is that goodness um, and progress is everywhere. And we will help people cultivate what they are uniquely built to contribute to this future for us all. Now imagine a website with no ads, no games, and no agenda. Just a simple and powerful vision of combining our collective strengths to create a future we can all celebrate. The Goodness Exchange will open a new era for us all as individuals because you're going to find stuff that make your life better instantaneously. And as a collective, because we all want a better future for our children. Who knows what's possible if there was a place on the internet that brought out our best impulses and our collective genius? Join us after December 1st at the Goodness Exchange and start living with less fear, more joy as an individual and as a collective future for humanity. Thanks. Now we're back to the interview. Okay, we'll be back. So Gary, we've got to talk about the Great Reset, the Great Resignation, the Great Questioning. Talk to me about our times. I'm amazed at how many people every day I say, do you know about the Great Resignation? And more and more people do know about this. Talk to us about this and how it's relevant.
0: So first off, the Great Reset is a phrase that I used in an article that I wrote in April of 2020, because I looked back at previous resets like the Great Recession, and I realized that they tend to go through three phases. There's a fall, falling off the cliff phase of complete uncertainty. There's a riffling along of the bottom phase that's sort of an uncomfortable middle. And then there's a rebuilding phase, hopefully building back better. And now that many of us around the world, we're living in that middle uncomfortable phase. We keep thinking we can turn the lights back on. Oh, nope, got to turn the lights back off again. But as humans, we only have a certain amount of time that we can, and it's very subjective, but we, we feel that we can live in that uncomfortable middle. And then we just want to be able to make decisions. We want to be able to take actions. We want to be able to plan. But if this is a very extended period. And so when I show that three different phases, what I try to help people to understand is, look, this... This is the new abnormal. Like this is how we as humans are going to have to continually figure out how to be able to have the lives that we want. And and sure, there might be a future static time, and there are some parts of the world that do have that more static period. They've gotten control of the virus, or they've got policies that allow them to manage it. But the truth is, we're we're probably going to be living with this for a while. And uh, and so the Great Reset is my language. I mean, it's been picked up by groups like the World Economic Forum, but the Great Reset is a way to think about this and especially this middle phase. So we at least understand, okay, it's being extended, but there will be a time where we will be able to have more control over what we're doing. But I do believe it's an opportunity to create the next set of rules ourselves now. That's why I call it the next rules of work. I said, I believe we're. Together, we are co creating what the next rules of work are. And in 10 years, we're going to look back and say, This was a massive pivot for us as humanity. I mean, we but think about how quickly, in, in a period of three weeks, we went to all doing remote and distributed work. I mean, how crazy is that? We can, so many people are saying, yeah, There's no way you could do that. There's no way that's going to happen, right? Now, it's because of a virus, it's not because of some exponential technology. But the truth is, we can realize how rapidly we as humans can change. Now, the great resignation. It's not my favorite label because it actually puts it in the context of the employer and not the individual, right? It's, so it's, you know, take this job and I quit, you know, sort of thing. I'd rather put it into the positive perspective which is it's the great opportunity. It's really what we've done is we have broken the seal on so many of the things that we thought what I call the old rules of work were absolutely guaranteed requirements. We had to do rotten commutes. We had to work in cubicle farms. We had to work nine to five or six or 10 or weekends. or you know We had to do these things. It's a set of obligations. And instead, what we've realized is these are just decisions. These aren't laws of nature. These are laws Laws of humans. These are decisions we've made. We can make different decisions. And because we had to make different decisions, we made up a whole bunch of next rules. Now, we as humans, we do tend to want a bungee cord back to the way that we did things before. But because we've broken the seal on this, we've opened Pandora's box, and we said, you actually can have more control over the six W's of work, what you do for your work, when you do your work, who you do your work with, where you do your work with, how you do your work with, and why. And so those six W's are all now under complete reset. You can make new decisions. And when we tell you suddenly, oh, I know I said you used to have to go to the office, but now you can work from anywhere in the world, a world of possibilities are open to you. And so this is really what the Great Resignation is. It's Now, it's a variety of different context for people i want to make sure we're talking a little bit about high class problems if you're a what we often now call frontline workers you you can't deliver that meal or help that patient in the hospital from remote so so that's a high class problem for many people who could work from different places but those were also in many cases not the most fun jobs you know you now have to be the person checking for covid vaccinations at the door of the restaurant i mean come on that's asking a little too much. And so it's perfectly understandable. If you would want to say, wait a minute, why am I doing my work? Where do I really want to do my work? Who do I really want to work with? What kinds of problems and skills do I most want to use? Do I love using? All of those now are back on the table for so many people. And that's really what the great resignation represents is a great opportunity for each person to go through what my father talked about. What did you focus of your work? Where do you wanna do that work? And how will you find or create that work?
1: All right, I am got to get you. I'm, you see me looking over here. I'm trying to keep track of the timestamps so I can put this in the show notes because you've given us some very practical tools here. What I love about your message is that the six things and can you re- reiterate those really, really quickly? the six
0: Ws: what, where, who, how, th- that's a, still a W, <laughs> when, and why. And okay. those actually are the six questions that Aristotle asked to determine if an act was moral. And so I actually put into the book what I call the Aristotle Canvas. I've got a, in Silicon Valley. We love canvases. And so what we do is it's a a single sheet of paper where you just map out one or two line answers to each of those questions. And each of them has two sub-questions for yourself. And then I've got a version for your organization. If you're somebody who leads in an organization, your organization has those six W's as well. There's a what, where, who, when, how, and why of your organization, too. And so that's a tool for you to get more aligned with what you want you to be doing, the future you for work and life, but it's also an opportunity within your organization to align with others so that the six W's are far more in sync. So
1: I remembered the reference to the three things because I think it's worth uh, mentioning that too, just for people know with a sense of grounding where we are. There were three stages. You said there was sort of a when oh. everything's normal and then there, there's this chaotic stage and then we'll get back to some new version of normal. How, how do you define those three stages again?
0: So the first, in the great reset, it was in previous resets, we've seen the same patterns. Okay. It's, there is a period of complete uncertainty. It's falling. I show a picture of falling off a cliff. It's like, you have no idea. Remember the beginning of the pandemic? We were all just saying, wait a minute, what's going on? Like, And, we, and complete uncertainty. We have no idea what we're doing tomorrow. When, and we, And planning goes down to zero. The fog down the highway is complete. There is no way you can determine what tomorrow might look like. And then there's a middle period where the fog lifts just a little bit. And then suddenly the fog comes back down again. So that middle period, I show a picture of a heartbeat. And it's because this is what happens. uh, Depending upon the Venn diagram of your lived experience, the COVID infection rates in your location, in your geography, the policies of your country, the policies of your company, your industry, your team, the projects you're working on, where your workplace is, how well you and your teammates are or aren't on. You add up all those Venn diagram elements and that defines your lived experience in any given day. And it could be completely different tomorrow. The Nordics have a great phrase, same storm, different boats we each have a different lived experience in this period. And that's what happens in the uncomfortable middle is you might talk to one of your friends and they are loving life. They've got remote work, They're everything's going great, they're getting paid better, they just shifted jobs, they're living where exactly where they want to live. Everything is marvelous. And you'll talk to somebody else and no, they're a frontline worker in a hospital and the infection rate is spiking and they've, they're exhausted. And it is same storm, different points, we each have a different lived experience. And that's really challenging for us as human beings. We need new ways of thinking to be able to get through those periods.
1: All right. Thank you for putting those, the six and the three top of mind. So now with that clarity, go into some of your, your most important uh, elements of the rules of work, because I, I can tell this is going to be helpful for people to reframe their situation and go forward in a more resilient way.
0: So the first insight I want to offer is that it is a great reset of work. We can talk separately about learning and about educational institutions. I I lecture frequently to a, a range of academics and students and administrators around the world, helping them understand the seismic changes in education. But let's stay anchored in work. So first off, we are rewriting the rules of work together. That's what's happening. And so I try to offer framing in the book. To put language around those changes so that we can understand just how seismic the changes are but then also see them as tools as opportunities right so so the framing of the book is mindset skill set tool set and the reason that that's important is uh, here's the, the analogy that i use mindset skill set and tool set work together to help you to be able to solve problems we're all problem solvers That's that's you know, basically, how our our minds work is we come out of the womb. We only know how to take food in one end and make it go out the other, and cry, and that's kind of it. And so we have to learn a range of skills, so we become problem solvers. But basically, mindset. Here's an analogy. I wave a magic wand, and you and I are standing at the foot of a mountain, and I have given you all the skill set to climb a mountain. But you look up at the top of the mountain and you say, "Oh, that's too cold. That's too hard." You have all the skill set, but none of the mindset you're not going to climb the mountain. I wave my magic wand again. And now you have all of the mindset to climb the mountain. You you look up and you say, how hard could that be? You take one step, two steps, you encounter problems, you solve those problems just in time and just in context. And then eventually you're standing at the top of the mountain and looking down and saying, how hard was that? And you developed a new skill set as you went along. Now, if you're climbing the mountain and you are confronting an ice wall, I don't care how good your mindset or skill set is. You need a good tool set. You need a pickaxe and you need good boots. So here in Silicon Valley, we tend to lead with the tool set. We think if I just give you the right technologies on your digital distraction device. Everything will be fine. No skill set is important, but mindset eats the skill set for lunch and tool set is the supporting set of techniques and technologies to help you to do the work that you want. So the first insight is we are rewriting those rules. The second insight is you need to continually understand your own mindset, skill set, and tool set to be able to effectively navigate change, whether you're an individual contributor or you're a sole entrepreneur or you're somebody who leads in an organization. So the second insight is we want to help, I want to encourage people to understand how to have much more of a growth mindset to develop 21st century skills to be able to continually have the, the skill set they need and to be able to become knowledgeable and usable the the technologies and techniques that we use to be able to continually solve problems.
1: You can see how I'm writing as fast as I can. I. I, I... I know that our producer, just, just for people's peace of mind, our producer is taking really good notes on the side here, too. And you'll be able to find the timestamps in the show notes so you can get back to some of these insights Gary is sharing with us. You know, since we're talking about the the future of work, um, I want to share a quick insight and get your opinion on it um, that I had. I was talking to a thought leader, Jason Conley, on the podcast oh about a month ago. And he has the funniest life story that has pinnacled out right now when he's a young man, he's only 35. He has the largest placement agency in in Great Britain for lawyers. So he was talking to 40,000 lawyers in a public speaking engagement recently. And (laughs) he he told me that the biggest pushback in that industry about reshaping work is that the boss wants people in their seats ready to respond when, when they beckon. It may, may not be like a, as hard a lift if the bosses change their mindset about how work works for them.
0: Absolutely. No, I think that's a great insight. So I talk a lot in the book about the changes in roles that are inevitably happening. Now, not everybody likes this. If you've got a fixed mindset or if you were that person who had that power in the organization, you're probably pretty uncomfortable with these changes. And there's no question that as humans, we tend to bungee cord back to what we know. Um, So you do see a ton of pronouncements from CEOs around the world. lead in organizations to basically try to put some kind of requirements around returning to those old rules of work. And there are many industries and companies that are probably going to just go ahead and do that. But that's a missed opportunity. You're exactly right that if those who lead, and notice I don't use the word leader, I feel like we've lost the meaning of the word leader. I use, say, I make it a verb. Those who lead in organizations uh, or those who guide teams, I don't even use the word manager, I talk about team guides, because I think we need to have a completely new mindset for how we channel human energy in the context of creating value for the organization's stakeholders. And so so that's an opportunity for leaders to do a range of things, to become more transparent, to say, listen, we're in this uncomfortable middle. I don't know the answer. I've never lived through a global pandemic. We're all trying to co-create these next rules together. To be able to say, listen, I care about each of you as human beings, and I understand you want balance in your lives, and and I've given you this period of time where you can go take the kids to the soccer game, which you never used to be allowed to do before, take your sick aunt to the hospital, which you never used to be allowed to do before, and now you think I'm taking those rights away from you. But then there's others that want the bungee cord back to the office. And so CEOs are often trying to thread the needle in the middle by gaming everybody, by the ones that want to stay remote or distributed for as long as possible, and those that want to be back in the office for as, as rapidly as possible. But we're missing an opportunity here. This is a chance for you to develop a completely new model of leading in the organization, one that, that I call a The team guide, not the one who is the sage on the stage with all the answers, as my friend Esther Wojcicki says in Moonshots in Education, but to become the one with all the best questions, the guide on the side that is enabling others to be able to do their best work.
1: Well, the guide on the side, that is just a genius of a, of a concept. I, I'm, I'm going to head that way <laughs> after this, after the show. We're going to talk about that because I, I think I'd love to talk to anyone who can come up with that expression. That's super. Now, and that, you know, to your point, that's exactly what Jason was talking to these captains of industry about was that they weren't going to be able to hire people unless they made sure kids, people could be there to meet their kids at the school bus. I mean, it's just the new the new expectations about creating value for your workforce. Yeah.
0: It's the same thing that I was talking about earlier about us as individuals. And the reason I use the imagery of the iceberg is we only have this small amount of awareness of our own skills and unique capabilities that are above the waterline. And then there's this huge amount of human potential and capacity that's below the waterline. The same is true for those who lead in organizations. You asked... People within your organization to only show you this tiny amount of them, this small skill set that you hired them for. And you didn't want the responsibility of what's below the waterline. And then along comes a virus. And imagine the first Zoom call that you often had is, wait a minute, I didn't know that you have Kids at home, or you've got a cat, or there's a guitar on the wall. You play guitar. We opened up the aperture of awareness. We started to look below the waterline and realize that every single person is a whole person. We can't go back from that. You won't go back from that if you lead in an organization. You can't tell people to suddenly shut down what's below the waterline again and just show me the piece of you in work. We're we're not going back. That is
1: fundamental. I just got a little bit of a shiver, a goosebump. That's the bottom line, isn't it? You know, I'm now talking freely to other people's pets. (laughs)
0: <laughs> As you should. Yes. I mean, you know, we,
1: we talk in a funny little voice to all. Uh, we're the kind of family on this family farm I'm on that everybody has their own dogs. There's dogs everywhere, cats everywhere. And, and we all talk, have this funny voice. Even my brother, six foot six, has a funny little voice. He talks to all the pets in. And now I'm talking to people's pets on the screen. <laughs> I think that happened within about two months of the pandemic. I was talking to other people's pets in a small voice.
0: <laughs> Remember how funny the early Zoom calls when there were videos of people's kids running in and out, how how odd that seemed? And now you couldn't get a laugh on YouTube or on TikTok. Like, it just wouldn't happen. It's just, it's it's the new normal, new abnormal.
1: And, the, you know, the bad haircuts. Uh, one night we were sitting with all our brood out during the pandemic around a fire pit, eight of us, and that we were cloistered with for 18 months. We all looked over at my husband, Dr. check and he had kind of a Peruvian bowl cut going. Hmm. And it was something about this shadows of the fire and we were on the ground laughing his attempt to cut his own hair yeah A. bardum kind of thing yeah so well and i think it's okay to hearken back to some of these moments gary because it's the same humanity that's in the example you just gave about caring about more than the skill set, caring about the person. You know, if we look at these moments of where we shared a laugh or, or a cry for that matter during the pandemic, this is a connecting place where we can
0: find our shared humanity. Absolutely. Now, now there are people with more of a fixed mindset who really liked having that just a little part above the waterline showing and didn't want anybody to see what's below the waterline. They wanted to show up for their job, do the nine to five, just feed their family and put a roof over their heads. And that was it. And that is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong. I call those the old rules of work. There's nothing wrong with that. And, And our parents and our grandparents in their generation, that was work work the definition in the dictionary they went to first was work is drudgery work is obligation work, is, and so that there's nothing wrong with that the challenge is that in a world of exponential change a fixed mindset is not sufficient to help many people to be able to adapt. Uh, So that's why I talk about a new skill set. It's not just a new mindset. It's a new skill set that we need to be able to become, I I use the acronym of PACE, problem solvers who are adaptive, creative, and with empathy. We each need to develop a new skill set because that fixed mindset kept us from being able to continually grow and change and develop new skills and the challenge is, sure, there might still be plenty of jobs like that that are relatively static, but increasingly we know the Venn diagram of what is needed today and what is needed tomorrow, there's less and less overlap. We're going to all need to have a growth mindset to be able to navigate that disrupted world.
1: Oh, I love that Venn diagram comment. You, um, you mentioned it to me in our pre-interview. You, you talked about the old rules of work were make money, get paid for it. And the new rules are do what you love and what the world needs talk to me a little bit more about that
0: so there's a i, I tend to talk about these sort of as, as rungs on a ladder or in silicon valley we call them a stack like you know different pieces that are sort of all interconnected but if you think about it when you first did that first junkie job when you first came out of, of high school college vocational school whatever what's the first thing you needed to do was just get paid right my, my first job here in san francisco was working for an early t- early computer company taking two piles of taking one pile of paper making it two piles and then faxing one and i often say to audiences how many people here raise your hand have you, have you seen a fax and the young people say well, what how do you spell that is there an x in there um and so the first job is just the deliverable is just to get paid and then after a while what you realize is if you do it well, if you're good at it, you get paid better. Oh, okay. So now there's two deliverables get paid well and do it well. And so, and many people, that was the old rules of work, and that was sufficient just fine. But my father discovered 50 years ago with What Color Is Your Parachute that if you also give people the opportunities to do what they love, to use the skills that they love, solve the problems that they love, work with the people they enjoy working with, have the working conditions, the working environment that really helps you to do your best work and so on, you will actually do better work and you can get paid well for it and you can be good at it. And so so now there's three deliverables, get paid, do it well, do what you love. And many people stop there but there is a fourth rung on the ladder or fourth level of the stack and that is to do what the world needs there's something that you feel has an impact in the world that creates meaning or purpose in the world now it just so happens that this is called ikigai and in japan and especially in okinawa where some of the longest lived people in the world live it is considered not to be a life well lived unless you have all four of these elements operating in your life. And so what I talk about in the book is, sure, the old rules of work, we worked our way up that stack, and maybe you got to the last rung of the ladder by volunteering in the, what I call the period formerly known as retirement. But young people are coming out of college, high school, vocational school, and they are flipping the stack. They ask first, what does the world need? If I can do what the world needs, then I'm going to love doing that. If I love doing it, I'm going to get better and better at it. And if I get better and better at it, I'm going to make good money. And so parents ask me all the time, why won't my kid get a real job? You're looking at one of the reasons. They flip the stack. And so, CEOs of companies ask me all the time, pounding on the table, why does this millennial, which is, of course, our code nowadays for young people nowadays why does this millennial ask me walking in the door what the purpose of my company is? Nobody ever asked me that. I never asked somebody what the purpose of my company was. Well, it's because they are flipping the stack. They wanna know how are you showing up in the world? How do you care about your customers? How do you care about your suppliers, the communities in which you operate, the planet? Show me how you care about them. And if you don't care about them, this is the era of the great resignation to the great opportunity. I'm going on to the next employer.
1: Gary, I have to tell you, I talk to insightful people who give me goosebumps every single week. And that concept there, it starts, uh, we're gonna we're gonna put this in the show notes exactly where it starts, but this flipping the stack from both a young person's perspective and older person's perspective, that is such a way to preserve people's dignity and get us both to look at the problem from afar together rather than at odds with each other to sit it out in front of us that is a powerful insight that can change the world for people. If they talk about it on their work teams, what I think it applies to the family.
0: To absolutely, family. absolutely, it's an intergenerational thing. Is, is first off, you always want to honor other mindsets. There's there's nothing wrong with those mindsets. Those mindsets. You we started off with is talking about sort of the layers of how we build our cosmology. That is the way we think about the world and how we show up in the world and uh, how we think the world works. And each of us built our cosmology over a set of different factors. And those earlier generations had a totally different set of influences and in how they built their cosmologies. We need to honor those, but we also need to accept that the world is being impacted by disruptive change. And those old strategies, parents that say, why won't my kid just get a real job? Why won't my kid go to the right school and study the right industry or field and go into the right job? and get These are all answers to those questions. It's you are following the old rules of work. And in this era, they may no longer be sufficient to be able to help somebody to have a life of value. More
1: goosebumps. And I think we're going to try and wrap it up on this high note. I got to tell you, Gary, once in a while, we do a part one and part two, and we're going to have to have you back because I think that you've given us so much food for thought that it bears going down a bunch of these paths Great. individually at another conversation. So thank I would love you so that. much. If you're listening to this interview, please share it with others because these are the kind of conversations that we can all make rise to the top of the internet. We can stop the shouting. <laughs> we can look for the thoughtful measure voices like Gary's and we can make that become top of mind on the internet. So Thank you, Gary, for joining us. The book is The New Rules of Work by Gary Bowles. I want you to know that we're going to try and capture as much of this as we can in the show notes so people can get to exact points they want to listen to. I know that will be helpful to me. For more information about
0: what you're doing and how to connect with you, where do people go? The easiest is um, you go to my website. Uh, it's nextrules.co or you can just find me on LinkedIn. That's where I post regularly. That's where you can find links to my courses and so on.
1: All right. Well, great. And, and I want to just make a offer, a plea and for help with the, with the goodness exchange. This is a version of reality that we can all help elevate. And the best thing you can do for the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast is go and rate it wherever you listen to your podcast. So these kind of insights can again, rise to the top and compete with the kind of shrill shouting voices that are making us all feel the kind of overwhelm that Gary was mentioning earlier. Because we can feel peace of mind too. All right. So thank you, Gary. We we encourage people as always to dive into the landscape over there at the Goodness Exchange. And I hope these insights carry you through your week. And we will see you soon with more wonderful thought leaders who are changing the future for all of us. Thanks.